0: Thanks for tuning into the Refuge Church Sermon Podcast. It's our prayer that the Spirit would use God's Word to stir your affections for Christ during this time. While we're glad to provide this online content, please remember that it's not intended to replace commitment and connection within a local church family. Now, here's this week's message. All right. That was a lot. <clears throat> um, this morning, uh, we are, again, we're doing a church plant offering and uh, uh, and it was two weeks of preaching in a row, and I needed a week off. Um, that was a little joke. Uh, and so Eric Freeman, Eric used to be, uh, you can come on up, Eric. Eric used to be, uh, he was the youth minister here, you said 13 to 16, 2013 to yep. 2016, while he was at Covenant Seminary. Uh, and he made it clear from the beginning that he was a Michigander, and that... I'm sorry uh, about that, too. I was pretty annoying about well, it. that's all right. That's yeah. all right. He didn't even root for our local baseball club. Uh, but it's okay um no but uh but he did come down here uh, for a while and uh it was a a blessing to have eric and his wife julie uh they have now added to their flock uh max and josie Mm -hmm. and um they have two kids and they're going to be planning a church in cadillac michigan and so we're excited to have eric back all grown up and uh and that god has been at work in him even over the last five years Mm -hmm. Uh, and so we are rejoicing. We're going to be partnering, partnering with him financially. He's going to share a little bit more about that this morning. Let me pray for him, and uh, we'll get going. Come this way. All right. God, thanks for Eric. Thank thank you for the ways that he uh, has submitted to you, that he's trusted you, that you have worked in him, that you have provided him uh, really both the good and the bad of, uh, of knowing you and growing and trusting and uh, figuring things out and wrestling with uh, his faith, with his calling, with all of that, um, and that you are continuing to work in him. And uh, we are thankful to be a part of the work that you are going to do in him and through him uh, at uh, the Refuge Church in Cadillac, Michigan. And I pray this morning you would give us ears to hear, eyes to see, and that the church would be glorious and beautiful as we encourage and support one another. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks, Trey. Yeah. Kids, okay. I forgot that. Kids, we actually we have EGC today, so Elevate. If you're first or second grade, you can go to Elevate. Is out that door. We have EGC, which is third, fourth, and fifth grade, and that is uh, going back through the New City Catechism, and that is going out here in the office. Miss Lisa's over there, and so the mass exodus of children is once again upon us, and. Now I've done everything I'm supposed to do. (laughs) Well, hey, Refuge. It is uh, good to see you guys again. It has been a while.
1: I've been back to St. Louis a couple times since I graduated, but never on a Sunday. Um, And it is good to be here and uh, preach to you guys again. Um, Like Trey said, I was here uh, in 2013 to 2016. And before we got here, um, we were living in a city in northern Michigan that was like home to us. And what made it home really was our church home. We, we belonged to a fantastic church. And I remember the day that we had to leave to move to St. Louis, a city I'd never really been in before. That day, I wept like a little baby because I had to move here. Um, I thought that everything that was possibly good was up at home in northern Michigan and that there was nothing good down here. Um, that's not completely true. But uh, it was genuinely a really big fear that I was losing everything that was most valuable to me. And that uh, maybe I would never find another church family quite like that again and God answered all of my fears through you guys Um, can't tell you how special this church is to me Uh, how much I learned here um, how much uh, you guys poured into our lives through uh, the through the elders through our community group uh, through the opportunity to serve your kids Um, y'all are grown up now too uh, like, it's, yeah, you're all in, like, college and stuff, and that that's crazy. Um, it was a fantastic three years, and I, and I really wish it could have been more. Um, but where God has led us over the last five years since we've left, uh, we went back to Michigan, um, and uh, we're now planting a church in this small city called Cadillac, Michigan. If you know where Grand Rapids is, just drive an hour and a half north of there. Um, and if you say, well, is there anything there? No, there's not, but there is Cadillac. Uh, It's it's just kind of out in the middle of nowhere, a small city of 11,000, and that's where we've been for the last four years, and on October 31st, we are having our first public worship service, and this last Thursday, we had our first church community group, so I think we can say we're officially launched now, And and it's been amazing to see that. We'll talk more about all those details later. Lots been happening in my family since we left, too. In five years, um, we added to our family, like Trey said. So, my wife, Julie, she's there on the left. Um, and then my son, Max, he's about two and a half years old. He's there in the middle. Um, and uh, my daughter, Josie, short for Jocelyn, uh, she just turned six months. And uh, that's my family. Beautiful kids. Uh, love them to death. Uh, And if you thought that, man, Eric, should you really be planting a church when you have a two-and-a-half-year-old and a a six-month-old? Well, it's too late. Here we are. We're doing it. So pray for energy. (laughs) Um, You know, as we have been preparing to plant this church, uh, we get a lot of questions. And a lot of the questions are pretty normal. They're the same ones, right? People usually want to know the same information. Why are you planting this church? Tell us about... Uh, where you're planting, and we're going to answer some of those questions later. But recently, a friend of mine, we were talking about our church plant, and she asked me a question I hadn't quite received before. It sounded a lot like the other questions, but there was just a little spin on it, and I really didn't know how to answer it. She, She said, tell me about the moment, tell me about the moment when you knew God was calling you to plant this church. Tell me about the moment when you knew that God was telling you plant this church in Cadillac. Um, You know, I'm not really sure what sort of answer she was hoping for, if she was hoping for one. Um, I think a lot of times we like to imagine that when God calls someone to plant a church or to become a missionary or do any number of things, whether in ministry or not, we like to imagine that when God calls us to do those things, that it's like God parts open the skies, or God speaks to us audibly, or God gives us some fantastic vision like he gave to the prophets or the apostles, and I never got one. Never happened to me. Sometimes it happens to some people, not to me. And I didn't know what to tell my friend. And it kept me up that night. That night I I barely slept because I started asking the question, like, should I? Should I have received that vision? Should I have that uh, amount of clarity? Should it have been that specific and individual to me and in, in this church plant in this city? Should have I received that? And I didn't know what to do with that. Uh, so after uh, several hours of laying awake on the couch and um, and asking God these questions, I feel like He He put my mind at rest when he reminded me of these two parables that we find in Luke chapter 15. If you have your Bibles, you can open there now. These two parables from Luke chapter 15, which maybe provide an answer not quite to my friend's question, but maybe a better question that we can ask when we talk about church planting. So Luke chapter 15, verses 1 through 10. Follow along as I read. Now the tax collectors and the sinners were all drawing near to him And the Pharisees and scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. And so he told them this parable. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he has come home, he calls together all his friends and his neighbors, saying, uh, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost." And just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over the 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. And her neighbors saying, Rejoice with me, for I found the coin that I had lost. Just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Says the word of the Lord, it's absolutely true, and it's given to us in love. Um. Throughout Jesus' life and ministry, uh, we see this crowd really start to grow and follow him everywhere he goes. And when you think of a large crowd, it's probably hard to distinguish between the types of people that are in that crowd. But the Luke, the author of this book, he actually makes it very clear. There, there's really two types of people in this crowd. The first group he calls uh, with, the, with the name tax collectors and sinners. And that is kind of Luke's shorthand word for like the worst of the worst in society. Now, if you are a tax accountant or if you work for the IRS, do not worry. This is not about your job. It was very different back in this day. Tax collectors back in this day, they, they were usually uh, nationals of a conquered people who worked for the empire, betraying their own people, extorting them for their own selfishness and greed. That's probably Although some might wonder, but that's probably not what you do if you work for the IRS. Um, The term sinners, though, really encompassed a number of different types of sins. But specifically the types of sins that society deemed as worse than others. There were acceptable sins, and then there were not so acceptable sins in that day Um, They were the moral outsiders of the culture. They were the irreligious. They don't obey God's commandments. They don't study his word. They don't subscribe to the teachings of the religious leaders. And there were a lot of different reasons why you might find yourself in that group. Sometimes it's by your choice. It's the life you've chosen to live. Other times it's the life that someone else has chosen for you to live. But whatever the reason, however you got in that first group, you really never found yourself in the company of a teacher like Jesus. You didn't really belong there. Now the second group of people, Luke calls the Pharisees and scribes. These were the religious teachers. These were the religious scholars of that day. They were the ones who studied God's word. They were the one dedicated to spiritual disciplines. They were dedicated to keeping these religious traditions. They were the privileged religious insiders of the day. And so we have two groups, the immoral outsiders and the moral insiders, the religious and the irreligious. They share almost nothing in common. But what's interesting is that in the company of both of them, both groups, Jesus tells the same three parables. We're just looking at the first two in Luke 15 today, but he tells the same parables to both groups. Um... But what Luke wants to stress here, before we even get into the parables, is that it's not really a peaceful gathering. You know, sometimes we like to think that Jesus, when he teaches these parables, everybody's just sitting in a circle singing kumbaya and everybody's getting along. That's not really what's happening right now. Because these two groups are not responding the same way. On one hand, the, the sinners, as Luke calls them, they are flocking to Jesus. And they've been doing that for a very, very long time. More and more people who find themselves in the sinner category, they keep following Jesus everywhere he goes. There's something attractive, there's something beautiful about his message, something that has never been presented to them before. But the religious insiders, the Pharisees, the scribes, the ones who are used to being in the company of Jesus, or teachers like Jesus, they're on the outside looking in, really for the first time. Uh, they, they're, not, they're, they're usually the ones sitting closest to the famous teachers. But now it's not them. It's, it's these sinners who get to be close to Jesus. And so they grumble in those first verses. You notice they grumble, which is maybe just Luke being polite. But they grumble and wonder aloud, how could this man receive sinners and share a meal with them? How could he accept them you know it's the second group the the Pharisees, the scribes, the religious ones, they were the ones most offended by Jesus it's kind of sad when you think about it, isn't it it's kind of sad that the ones who dedicated their entire lives to studying God's word were the ones most offended when he appeared to them in the flesh it's sad. Their assumption was that if Jesus only knew who these sinners really were, then he would treat them differently. If Jesus only knew just how bad they really were, he would know that those types of people don't belong in his company. But let me be clear, those sort of assumptions are not a reflection of Jesus' heart, as we'll see here in a moment. Those assumptions are actually a reflection of our own. A lot of things have uh, changed in the last 2,000 years since these events occurred, but not everything. Um, We still live in a culture of religion where uh, sometimes it's communicated in one way or another whether explicitly or implicitly that some people belong and other people's don't some people are supposed to be here and other people's uh, other people aren't intentionally maybe more often unintentionally we can communicate that we're combating that perception in the church today aren't we All all around us, we see examples, whether uh, real or perceived, examples of the church appearing as like an exclusive club for like the holier-than-thous, right? And we're fighting against that because unfortunately, that's how it feels. In some corners of the church, that's actually what's being communicated, unintentionally or intentionally. Now, um, there are a few different ways that we can feel that like, lack of sense of belonging in God's people, in, in the church. Uh, a guy named Andy Crouch, he put together a really helpful chart that explains the different ways um, in which we can experience this lack of belonging. Um, if you look at the chart on the screen with me, uh, in the top left, we see the first category, which Crouch calls rejection. And his definition of that is to be known but not love, that is a really painful experience. When somebody knows who you are, when they know where you've been and what you've done, what you've been through, and they will not give you their love because of it. You're not worthy of their love. That's what it is to be rejected. That's an extremely painful thing, and sometimes we see that in some churches, unfortunately, where some people, because of their past, because of their mistakes, because of their sins, they're not welcome here, or they're made to feel as if they're unwelcome. Again, it can be unintentional, even with our best intentions. Down to the bottom left of the chart, there's this other category, which we call ignored, which means not known and not loved. And I don't need to go into great detail here, but you can probably imagine that there are some types of people who we would never imagine set foot in any type of church. That's what it means to be ignored. We don't even want to know them, let alone love them. And then the last one that Crouch hits on, which I thought was interesting, it it kind of raised my eyebrows at first, this category fitting in, which is not known, yet loved. This is keeping people at an arm's distance. This is the nice, polite, small talk at church, but we never get to know you beyond that. We're not inviting you to be vulnerable or real with us. We just want you to put on your best appearance, be here, and then go home. Just fit in. And that is actually that can actually be just as lonely of an experience as any of these other categories. See, there's a fourth box up there. We'll get to that in a little bit. Um... But from this chart, you can see that there are a lot of different ways where we can explicitly or implicitly communicate to people that maybe they have to pretty themselves up. Maybe they have to prove themselves worthy to be in our presence. Maybe they have to hide their flaws or mistakes in order to belong. Or for some, maybe there's just no chance. There's just no chance for you to ever find your belonging here. The truth is that, that we're all actually looking to belong somewhere. It's actually a good thing. That desire that you feel in yourself, that longing that you have to have relationships, to have community, to have a place where you feel like you belong, that's something that God created in you. It's part of who we are as human beings. But the reality is, if that we don't find belonging where God created us to find belonging, in his people, in the church, then we're gonna go try to find that sense of belonging somewhere else. And so it's no wonder where if you've been mistreated in a church, why you would walk away and not give it another chance, right? Because you can find maybe a lesser version of that somewhere else, but at least it wouldn't come with risking the heartache and pain again. And this is true in Cadillac, uh, this small city where I'm from. When I moved there four years ago, uh, I met with a Christian leader in town and and he told me um, that Cadillac is a mostly Christian city and that the church has got it covered. Uh, we don't need new churches, we just need better ones, which I absolutely agree with the second part of that. We always need to be reforming and, and, and improving the way that we do church life. We, and I'm a huge fan of established churches. Weirdly, you guys kind of are now, right? That's, that's kind of fun to see that whole evolution. Um, but, uh, but after my first year of living in Cadillac, what I found is that the narrative that that man presented me, and many others like him presented me, actually didn't match the reality of what I was seeing. Within a year, I would point to most of the people that I was meeting outside of the church that I was a part of. um, Most of the people that I was meeting were not Christians. They didn't feel like they belonged to a church. They might have known a little bit about Jesus and the gospel. Up there, it's not a hostile post-Christian environment necessarily most people up there have kind of that vague belief in a god and we hope he's on our side if we just do enough good things then maybe we can prove our worth to him that's kind of a popular belief up there but most of the people that i was meeting with they didn't fit this narrative they didn't fit in (laughs) they they didn't belong to the church And so that led me to kind of go look at the numbers. And so we started looking at the census data and the surveys. um, And and what we found, honestly, was astonishing to me, but especially to locals. What we found was that 64% of our city does not identify as Christian. Now, maybe that doesn't sound, maybe you don't have like a frame of reference for that. So let me compare it for you. It's the same number as Portland, Oregon. Same number as Seattle, Washington. When you think of a small rural city in the northern Midwest, do you think that they are just as religious or irreligious as a place like Seattle, Washington or Portland, Oregon? No. That is astonishing that we have a city like this when the narrative, the belief, the assumption is we've got it covered. Something wasn't matching up. Like I said, Cadillac is not a post-Christian city. Um, It's not so much that the teachings of Christianity are the main obstacle. In fact, I think that most of the people that I'm talking with, the non-Christians I'm talking with, actually like the idea of the gospel. They They hope it's true. They wish it was true. What actually seems to repel a lot of people in my city is the idea of belonging to the church at all. A lot of people have been burnt by the church and a lot of people have felt rejected by the church or ignored by them or they just feel like they don't fit in. And when that has been your experience, you eventually just grow tired and you try to find your sense of belonging somewhere else. And that's what's happening in my town. It's actually a wonderful community. We've got lots of places to connect. We've got amazing clubs and sports leagues and bars and restaurants that people congregate to you can find relationships. You can find an alternative to church, just not one that has the gospel. Now, I want to be clear. When you hear me talking about this, I'm not saying that church plants are so much better than established churches. That's not the solution. Church plants can be a really good idea. Established churches are also a really good idea because both, hopefully, are preaching and proclaiming the gospel, which is the actual solution. The gospel is the solution, not necessarily in what way the church goes about preaching the gospel. I, you know, maybe this sounds stupid. It probably is, but I'm gonna say it anyway. I have a lot of f- friends who are pastors at established churches. <laughs> um, I, I love them. Uh, and they're actually very much in support of what's going on here with our church plant. Uh, church plants need established churches, and established churches hopefully need church plants as well. These problems of lack of belonging, they really affect us all, regardless of what context we find ourselves in. But one of the reasons, maybe the main reason, why we are planting this church in Cadillac is to address this need that we're talking about. We look out at our city and we see thousands of people who are starving, especially in a post-COVID world, who are starving for relationships, for belonging again. And we believe that the gospel of Jesus Christ has the answer to that. So we have two groups of people listening to Jesus, the sinners and the Pharisees. And Jesus tells them both the same parable. We're focusing on the first two of those three parables this morning. And when you look at these parables, they're nearly identical, right? It's pretty much the exact same story, just different objects uh, representing the same meaning. In the first story, Jesus tells us about a shepherd who has 100 sheep. He loses one, and then that shepherd leaves behind the 99 and goes to find that one sheep. When he finds it, he throws it on his shoulders and he celebrates and throws a party with all his friends that he's found the sheep. And then the second one's just like it. It's a woman who has 10 silver coins. A silver coin in this day is about a day's wages, so it's a still a significant amount. She loses one, and what she do? She turns the whole house upside down. She sweeps every corner. She looks in, under every crack in every corner to find that lost coin, finds it, and parties and celebrates. And these two parables we have really four common things that are weaving through all of them. Four themes or four symbols. First, the obvious. Something has been lost, right? The second, the owner goes to great effort, great sacrifice to find that which is lost. And then third, the owner rejoices and throws a party when that thing that was lost is now found and Jesus, after both of these parables, gives the meaning. The lost are the sinners. The lost objects represent the sinners and the woman and the shepherd represent God who wants to go out and seek out these lost sinners and when that sinner repents and belongs to God once again, there's much rejoicing, there's much partying. The fourth common theme hidden The fourth common theme in these parables, it's hidden in that opening statement, though, if you look at verses 4 and 8. Jesus kind of makes a common sense statement. What man of you or what woman of you wouldn't also do this? If you lost your sheep, wouldn't you also have the exact same response? If you lost that coin and it belonged to you, wouldn't you do the exact same thing? Jesus is trying to relate to his audience why aren't, uh, like, he's asking them the question, do you feel the same as would be natural if you lost something else that you found precious? Because what's lost to God, these lost sinners in need of repentance, they are valuable to him. They are precious to him. It should be natural, a natural response to go, for, go searching for something of yours that's been lost um, my son, Max, he, he's teaching me that lesson right now. He is currently going through his um, two-year-old construction vehicle phase, which I'm sure a lot of you guys remember that one well. Pray for us. Um, and he's getting a lot of presents from his relatives, toy bulldozers, toy loaders, toy backhoes. I learned what a backhoe was from my two-year-old son. And toy excavators. And just yesterday, Julie sent me this text message. Max is singing Jesus Loves Me to himself, only he has replaced Jesus with Bulldozer. Yes, Bulldozer loves me. Yes. Pastor's kids. It's a problem. It is a problem. We're putting away money for counseling. Um, he's obsessed with construction vehicles, but his, his prized possession is that toy that he's holding there, his toy excavator. He loves that with a passion. It's the first thing that he talks about when he wakes up in the morning, and when I put him down to bed, he asks if he can sleep with his excavator. He actually pronounces it escalator, which I'm curious to know how he pronounces escalator once he learns what that is, but... Uh, Every once in a while, his toy excavator gets lost, as do most of his toys. They find themselves under his teddy bears or shoved in the couch cushions, and he doesn't know where they are, and he freaks out. He wants to know where to find them. And so we go looking, as is more often the case than not. His parents find them for him. Uh, He puts us to work. And, and, And during the search, there's nothing that can distract him. We can't put on Netflix, we can't bake cookies, we can't uh, give him another toy. Nothing is going to distract him until he has found his excavator. But the best moment is when Max finally does find the excavator. He's running around the house, shouting out, Excavator, where are you? As if it's going to like reply back to him. Um, never happened yet, but maybe someday. And when he finds it, he picks it up and shouts, Excavator, excavator, and he holds it up and he will not stop shouting and celebrating excavator and doing a little happy dance with his feet until we also celebrate with him. He wants that acknowledgement. See, we could spend all day trying to convince Max uh, that his toy excavator actually isn't that special. There's a million others in the world just like it. There are other toys that we paid a whole lot more money for that we wish he would play with, but it wouldn't change a thing because it's his. It's his beloved. It's his precious. It's his, it, 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 he inexplicably loves it. It belongs to him. And nothing will stop him from looking for it when it goes lost. And isn't that just the picture of Jesus's love for us lost sinners? What he's giving us in this in these two stories, these two parables, the way that Jesus talks about the celebration when someone repents from their sins in the image of the shepherd, in the image of, a, of this woman who lost her coin, we're given a window to see into the heart of a God who cannot help himself, but to go looking for his lost children when they have wandered away from him. It is God's joy to do so. And the implied question After reading these parables, is are we celebrating too? Do we want this too? See, Jesus, in part, is telling the parable to to comfort some of the people in this crowd. We're going to talk about the other part of what he's doing here in just a minute. But one part of what he's doing is he wants to provide comfort to those who would identify themselves in that first group of people, the sinners. Jesus is inviting them to watch and to listen as their Savior confronts those who have rejected them and others like them. He wants them to watch and see how he defends them against their wagging fingers of condemnation. He's inviting you to watch and listen to the heart of your Savior in front of your accusers. But what's remarkable is that in Jesus comforting the sinners, he's not brushing their sin under the rug. He's not ignoring their problem. He's not making light of it. That is not true belonging. Because really, if we were to look at those categories on that first chart I showed you, that would be to be loved but not really fully known. I just want you to fit in here but I don't actually want to get to know you or your story. I want to actually ignore that part. No, that's not what Jesus is doing to the problem of sin. That's not what we need. Jesus' solution to sin is rather this fourth part of that chart which is true belonging which is to be fully known and fully loved. Let me tell you, that's a scary statement. That should scare you at first, to be fully known and fully loved. The idea that the God of the universe knows everything about you, including the worst parts of you, and yet, and here's the wonderful part, and yet loves you still, and yet wants us to belong to him. We don't need to be afraid when our God finds us out. We don't need to be afraid when our God goes running in search for us. Because he doesn't come to us with that wagging finger of condemnation or shame. He comes to us with joy. With celebration. His lost child has been found fully known and fully loved. That's is the answer to our problem of sin that is true belonging love the way that uh pastor dane ortland puts it in his book gentle and lowly he says the high and holy christ does not cringe at reaching out and touching dirty sinners no such embrace is precisely what he loves to do he cannot bear to hold back This is deeper than saying that Jesus is loving or merciful or gracious because the cumulative testimony of the four gospels is that when Jesus Christ sees the fallenness of this world all around him, his deepest impulse, his most natural instinct is to move toward that sin, not away from it. His deepest impulse, his most natural instinct is to run to you when you are at your worst. It's his joy. It's his joy that he had stepped down from his throne in heaven and entered our world. It's his joy that he entered the flesh and lived among us. It was his joy to preach and to heal and to make disciples. And the book of Hebrews even says that for the joy set before him, Jesus even endured death on a cross to pay the price for our sins. It was his joy to do so. Listen, if you have ever doubted, if you've ever doubted Jesus' commitment to treat you kindly, if you have ever doubted just how far he will go to forgive you from your sins, past, present, and future, if you've ever doubted his invitation to come and truly belong to him and his people, if you've ever doubted that, look at the cross. Look at his cross, because it was there. As he was hanging there, paying the price for our sins, the very people that he came to save stood below him, mocking him, insulting him, rejecting him still. And what did he say in response? Father, forgive them, because they don't know what they're doing even there is forgiveness possible. The Pharisees are standing there grumbling and wondering aloud why does Jesus receive these sinners? How could he accept them? And the answer to their question is that this is precisely what Jesus came to do. To make a way for us to belong to him once again fully known, and even at our worst, fully loved. So there were two things that Jesus is doing here. First one is he's trying to comfort those who stand before their accusers and say, no, you will never belong. He's trying to provide comfort and forgiveness for them. The other part, and maybe the more important part of what he's doing here, is that he's confronting that second group. This parable is honestly probably the target audience for this parable is probably more so the Pharisees and scribes than it is for the tax collectors and sinners in the crowd. Jesus hears their grumbling. He sees their hard hearts. And he gives them these parables to show them that their self-righteousness and that their unloving hearts, they're actually destroying their own souls and destroying the lives of others around them. There's a pastor named Tim Keller, you might have heard of him, reflecting on these parables. He writes that if the preaching of our ministers and the practice of our parishioners, members of our churches, do not have the same effect on people that Jesus had, then maybe we're not declaring the same message that he did. If our preaching and if our actions as church members is not having that same welcoming, forgiving effect. Now we're all fallen and we're all going to make mistakes along the way. And there's grace for that. But if overall we're not communicating the message that sinners belong to Jesus and belong in God's among God's people, then maybe, maybe we got the message wrong somewhere. The Pharisees, remember they've studied God's word. They dedicated their lives to God's word. It's not like they're totally unfamiliar with what it says, but yet they wanted to believe in a different message. And in what is really an ironic twist of events in this story about Jesus and in his life and ministry is that for the first times, it's them who find themselves on the outside looking in. They're the ones who discover that by their own choice, they don't belong to this God because they actually haven't acknowledged that they need to belong in that way. They can't celebrate what Jesus himself is celebrating because they don't want it. They don't want that picture of God's people. This is really a warning for us in the church today, isn't it? if we are preaching a message or putting up cultural obstacles that prevent people from hearing the gospel and belonging in his church, and if we're not also acknowledging our own need of the gospel, that actually, really, there's just one category that we all should be finding ourselves in the category of these lost sinners who need to be sought and saved. If we're not finding ourselves there, then we're really no different than the Pharisees here. And it's no wonder that we find people like my people in Cadillac or any number of places across the world, it's no wonder why they might not feel comfortable stepping foot in a church. But the good news is that Jesus invites us into a better way. And that's his invitation through these parables this morning. He invites us to a better way for God's people, for his church. And and I learned of this better way largely from you guys, from this church, from Refuge Church, the message is clear. Week after week, we do this representation of the gospel that we're all sinners in desperate need of grace and there's no hope apart from the grace that Jesus gives us. There's no hierarchy of sins. No, regardless of your past, you are welcome here. You belong here. You're invited to. This is precisely why Jesus has a church for this mission, to invite people like you and me. There's um, w- what we could call... I mean, the buzzword is authenticity, but that's kind of growing old on us now. Maybe, maybe as I reflect on what you've taught me, Refuge Church, is honesty, honesty about ourselves, that we learn to not become afraid of actually confessing who we are and how lost we are, whether you're the visitor or the preacher, like that we all have this honesty of, yeah, I need this, I'm in desperate need of this. You've taught me the kindness of God's mission and his grace. A verse that's been on my heart for the last few years is Romans 2, 4. But do you not know that it is the kindness of God that leads men to repentance? Not condemnation, not shame, not heaping guilt on people's shoulders, not a long to-do list. It is actually the kindness of God who makes himself gentle and lowly. And it is that that becomes the beautiful attraction that, allows us, that frees us up to repent from our sins. I've learned that kindness from you. It's the community that we find here. The community where we're, we have a church within a church, so to say, where we have brothers and sisters in Christ where we can share even the worst parts of ourselves with. And have living reflections of Christ's love for us in the members of other people in those community groups and in, in those gospel communities. You've taught me that. You see, the, these things are, are what it looks like to be a, a church who follows Jesus on his mission to seek and save the lost. To be a church that creates that true belonging to be fully known and fully loved. And, and guys, whether or not you know it, um, what you've taught me about this kindness, about this grace that we have in Jesus. That DNA is running through a little new startup church a thousand miles away in northern Michigan. We're there preaching to our city. We planted this church for you. Yes, you. Even you. Even me. We have these two rhythms of our church, one on Sundays, which might be familiar, but where we're, where we're trying to make the gospel accessible. We're not watering it down, but speaking in plain language for people so that they can understand that, it, yes, it's for them, not for the educated, not for the elite, but yes, for them, regardless of what background you come from. And then we have kind of like this back door into the church through our weekly community groups. And we just had our first one this last Thursday where maybe you're not comfortable having your first encounter with the church again to be during Sunday worship. But yeah, you like barbecue. Yeah, I'll show up to that party. Yeah, I'll hear the gospel there. And hopefully then you have 12 to 15 best friends now that you can find on Sunday morning when you do feel ready to join in worship on Sunday. We hope both flow one into the other. But really as a church, the Refuge Church at Cadillac, what we're doing is we're we're inviting people to what I think Christ is inviting all of us into, to belong, to be fully known, and receive the gift of being fully loved in return. As we learn what it is to become one of his true disciples, one of his true followers. Now, I still don't have a great answer to my friend's question. Uh, what did it feel like? Uh, what happened? What was that moment like when you knew God was calling you to plant this church? Because I never did. And since then, I haven't received that miraculous vision. God never opened up the heavens. God never spoke to me directly. Still hasn't happened. Maybe one day it will. But in a way, I have heard from him. In a way, I have seen him because I have Christ. Right here in Luke 15, what more do we need? Individual callings, special visions from God, those are all great. But the good news has already come to us in the person of Jesus. There's nothing new to share. It's just deeper and deeper into this wonderful good news that Jesus gave us 2,000 years ago. Look to Jesus Man, I, hope, I know that's what we do here at Refuge Church. Pray for us that that was, is what we continue to do at our church plant up in Cadillac, Michigan. Because in stories like this, we have seen the heart of our Savior and his mission to seek and save the lost. And may we, brothers and sisters of Christ, in Christ, my sister church here, continue to follow him in that mission to seek and save the lost. We might not have those singular moments but we still know what it feels like because Jesus has shown it and it feels pretty good. Let's pray. And dear Jesus, we we are so thankful for your love and your grace shown to even us, the worst of sinners. God, we know what our hearts deserve. We know what our actions truly deserve and yet you have not treated us according to what our sins deserve. But we are starting to learn just how high and how deep how wide and how long is the love of Christ for those who trust and believe in him. So Lord, we believe, but also help our unbelief. Lord, we follow you in this mission to the world, but make us follow you ever more into it. In your name we pray, amen.
0: a little uh, a brief Q&A but maybe in the interest of time I'll uh, we'll I'll invite people if you want to follow up with Eric uh, there's a postcard out front Uh, it's got you can you can talk to him afterwards uh, or put the he's you're gonna be in town for a couple more days till Tuesday
1: yeah I leave uh, Tuesday afternoon okay
0: so if you want to grab coffee if you want to hear more uh, if there's more specific ways you would like to be involved also the the uh, the vision for we emailed this out to the if you're on our email list, uh, but the rhythms and the vision and the prospectus is what it's called. Uh, 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 all of a sudden, you're an accountant, you're a you're a building manager, you're a electrician, you're a I mean, all of this stuff. So, could you real quick just share just some of the a couple of the things that God has done uh, in affirming this call yeah. in Cadillac? Uh
1: It's been amazing. About two years ago. Um, I started asking the question whether or not God could be calling me to plant this church Um, and it was really something that I had kind of grown hesitant toward uh, which might feel weird for you guys because you remember me leaving and thinking this is what I was gonna do but we hit some roadblocks along the way and I told God like man if you if you want me to plant a church um, you're gonna have to make it abundantly clear because I really felt like I was putting the the cart in front of the putting the the cart in front of the horse trying to force something that wasn't gonna happen and I wanted it to be from him and not me. And so the things that kind of lined up were, um, I, I had always had this condition, uh, and it's great to put conditions on God when you're trying to test his will. You should totally do it. But I always said, like, I can't plant alone. Um, I need a partner in this. And God provided this, this guy named Justin Sluter, who's my worship pastor, to co-pastor this church plant with me. He's a local. Uh, he is very well networked in the area. He's loved and, and has been an awesome partner for me in this ministry. Um, we got assessed by a missions agency and they gave two, three thumbs up and they were super glad about it. Uh, My former church up in Traverse City, Michigan, just north of us, out of the blue said, hey, do you want to still plant a church? We would love to help make it happen. And we're like, well, actually, let me catch you up here because we've been asking this question. And they're now our mother church, our sending church. and, And we've had a church plant residency, Justin and I, for the last year in doing that but maybe what what has been really affirming more than all of those kind of logistical details is to see the community response. The the community of established churches are thrilled that this is happening, including the church that I had pastored at for the last four years. Um, They are thrilled that this is happening, they know it's needed, and they're cheering us on and supporting us. Most of our support is actually coming from the Cadillac community, which is amazing. They don't see it as a competition, and we don't see it as a competition either. and, and we have a wonderful group of people, uh, 25 adults so far, who God has called to be part of our core team. And, um, you know, I had always assumed that most of our core team would be a bunch of, like, 19-year-olds, uh, And because I'm 33, and I guess that's what we attract. Uh, but actually, nothing wrong with 19-year-olds. Sorry, guys. Um, but <laughs> uh, we were wondering how we were going to pay the bills, uh, was part of that, and uh, God brought together a group of 25 where about half of them are 45 or older, mature, godly Christians who just want to be on mission in our city. Um, And then the last couple parts I'll share is that uh, we needed a meeting space. Everything was pretty expensive or closed off because of COVID. And uh, talked to the Cadillac school board. And within 24 hours, they said, go pick out whatever building you want in our entire school system. And we're really sorry to have to charge you $90 a week for it. And I said, I forgive you. Um, and they, they're, they're, it's an open contract, open to renew every year. They'll move us up to a bigger room if we need to, um, maybe charge us slightly more. Uh, um, but uh, it's amazing. And like I said, we just had this, our, really the launch of our church on Thursday through this community group. And there we had 25 adults gather, practically sitting on each other's laps in this small living room Walking through Philippians two of what it looks like to have a vision for church that begins with humility and selflessness that we've seen in Christ, and the energy and the enthusiasm that I saw in these people's faces was amazing. Um, God has really provided, and um, it's it's quite incredible. But yeah, uh, would would love for you guys to pray for us. Consider supporting us if if you feel like God is leading you to do that. Um, But but even even through the distance. Um, I hope you know how special this congregation has been to me, and whether my church knows it or not, to them as well. So thank you, guys.
0: All right. Building our identity in Christ for the sake of the world. That's the mission of Refuge Church. For more information, visit us online at seekrefuge.net.